Um, just, I think for the record, this is not the same shirt I wore last night. <laughs> Has similar colors. You could think that. The men are thinking, why does he even talk about this? Um, well, the reason I do is that Sandy, it, is, is our wives, try to make sure that we dress rightly. She said, make sure you do not wear the same shirt every day or wear a different shirt every day. Now, now men can tend to just wear one shirt they like till it's dead. And what's wrong with that? Sometimes we downgrade them from wearing in public to wearing in private to wearing in the garage to wearing, you know, changing oil in the car. So this is a different shirt, just to go on the record. Um, next slide, please. Speaking of shirts, this is, this is Dr. Taylor and I here at last year's Men's Revive, and we happened to wear a similar color scheme and shirt. There was no memo that would be kind of creepy. We just showed up. And I think what's interesting is over our, our unique heads are some interesting, unintended, maybe Freudian slips. I don't know. I'm facing my giant. <laughs> and obviously, Dr. Taylor is revived or in need of it, one of the two. So anyway, where's Dr. Taylor? Is he in here this morning? So I do have that shirt with me. Let's make sure, if you have it, that we don't wear it the same day. That would be just too weird. So now that we've done with the shirts, we can begin our study. Now, in, in spite of the inspiring and godly and biblical and loving and practical counsel from the skit, We're going to move on from there to something a little bit more biblical this week. <laughs> so I, I want you to join me this, this journey this week on biblical parenting. I don't know when parenting became a word, and I use it, but I don't really like it because it isn't really a biblical concept. What do we mean by that? So I would rather go to the scriptures that we are told to bring them up. And we used to talk about raising children, nourishing them, and it's a biblical concept to bring them to maturity from infancy to where they act independently and maturely with the Lord on their own. We are to bring them up. And you're thinking, perhaps, how does this apply to me? Now, some of you, you're right in the thick of the battle. I mean, you have young kids and, or, or of every age all the way to going to college and beyond, and this would be directly applicable to you. And I want this to be profitable and helpful as you look into the Word. We're on this journey this week to see what God has to say about bringing them up. Now, I think that another group would be you may someday have children. You may even be longing for that day. You might be single, wanting it, and say, I'm not even interested in girls. That could change, and does for many of us. And so as this might not be relevant today, we're told to store up the treasures of knowledge for use later. And so even though you and I value devotions that meet a need of the day, most of the time we're storing up a reservoir of truth that we're going to appeal to someday. So I want, you might be in that category, and that could be applicable to you. Some of you may be empty nesters, like us. Not quite elderly, but I think we're empty nesters, though I am on Medicare. Anyway, that's out of the bag. <laughs> Did you, you knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I know. 
Thank you for that. And so we are to invest in our children's children and leave a heritage to a generation beyond our own kids. And so we have, by the grace of God, we had 10 grandchildren all the way from the age of 13 down to 2. And we're to be investing in them, though they're out of the home. And I think there's, we, we need to stop, stop learning how to invest in generations yet to come or even yet to be born. So you need to be thinking about how to invest in generations yet to come. Another valid purpose for this is that if you have the joy of leading someone to Christ, their whole life needs to be arranged. And not only are there new believers learning spiritual truths, but they typically have husbands and wives and kids and, and jobs and all the things. They need biblical truth on how to reorganize their family as God would have them to be. So if you get to lead someone to Christ, you get to disciple them. Right? And it's a great privilege to invest in a new believer's life, and, and they typically just soak up the word as quick as you could give it. And that would include their finances and their marriage. And most families are kind of dysfunctional, having lived in the world. They need help on stuff with their kids. So if you lead someone to Christ, it could be helpful to you to invest in people. And you might be in none of those categories. But you know, God is my father, and I'm his child. And many scriptures make a reference or comparison like Psalm 103 that as a father shows compassion on his children, God shows compassion on us. So as you learn about biblical truths of raising children, you learn how God, in a sense, trains us. You, you, you just can't miss coming across those parallel truths of how God deals with his children and how I should deal with my own. So it's great value, I think, for everyone here. So please stay with me. I hope it's profitable. Pray that it would be as we begin our journey together. So let's take a look now at bringing up our children. And I want to begin a little bit this morning by kind of setting the stage, kind of setting the table for uh, the journey to kind of begin tomorrow, just laying out some things to think about before we go into this. So first of all is the need. And you have a little bit of space to write. I have some things underneath each point. But the need, the need to discuss this type of a thing, the need to address marriage and raising of children and the home and the family. And just a few things to consider. One would be the nature of children uh, presents a need. Children are born unregenerate with an old nature that's bent towards sin and selfishness. You don't have to teach them that. They're wired that way because of their nature. And, and so they're unregenerate, they're bent towards evil, uh, it doesn't take long for that to be manifested in their behavior before they can consciously choose what to do. They cry when everything is fine. And, and, and you check their pants. You do the sniff test. Everything's good. If it's not, you give them to mom. No, you just fix it. Does anyone remember real cloth diapers? Remember those? Yeah, before we had the... I'm glad that we did, but... Anyway, I'll, I'll move on from that before I embarrass our son. Well, he took four of them. Anyway. So they... <laughs> did I say that... Did I give you permission to publish this? Um, that's the way. He, he uses me for illustration, too, so that might be fair. When our daughter Angela was, I think, nine months old, we were camping on the Oregon coast, and she was our only child. We're new at parenting, not believers, doing the best that we could. And we spanked her. 
You know, right below the, right below the diaper, the little thick spot that God gave kids to snap them a little bit, to sting without hurting them, got her attention, and she did not like it. I mean, she just screamed like crazy, and she arched her back, leaned back her head, her eyes rolled over, and she passed out. I thought, we just killed our daughter. I, I was, I'm trying to revive her and resuscitate her, you know, pump in the chest and mouth to mouth. And boy, she coughs and she came and I said, whew, oh, that would have been horrible. Our first child is dead. And so we, she did it again. And we had a pediatrician, this is back in 1979. He said, she's just being rebellious. An unsafe pediatrician said, you, you, this is what you need to do. She just wants it. She doesn't like being spanked. This is her instinctive reaction to not liking it. It was to scream and to roll her head back, pinch off her airways, and pass out. He's, isn't that amazing? And so he said, what you do is if she does it, just leave the room. Come back like nothing happened. Ignore it. It'll eventually go away. And he was right. I physically tried to hold. I spanked her and then held her. You know, I, I could not hold her head hard enough to keep her from passing out. So it's wired into them um, your little kids, as precious as they are, are born unregenerate, selfish sinners. We've been there for most of our grandkids to be born. We welcome them to earth, you know. Welcome to earth. And I say, you little sinner. <laughs> and one day, you know, Papa loves you, but one day I might have to spank you. Today's not that day, but I might have to do it someday. And they got it from you, right? <laughs> that sinful nature passed along. They're born unregenerate. Um, they're selfish, demanding. They go astray from their mother's womb the day they're born speaking lies. They lie to you. And so when they're, everything is fine, you do the sniff test, pick them up, they quit. You put them back, they scream. You pick them up, they quit. They want to be held and will scream if you don't. That's their nature. And they need to be saved and need to be trained. And, and because of that, they're ignorant, oblivious to danger, oblivious to how their life affects other people. They have no social skills, and they're messy and sometimes disgusting and just downright gross. Sometimes it's hilarious, <laughs> but they're, they're just disgusting. Um, I won't mention any names, and I actually won't, but a pastor friend of mine, we were up at camp, and we were with uh, his wife and their son, who's now a pastor in our state, it's narrowed, it's, narrowed, it's, narrowed it, it's narrowed it down to 94, right? And he's sitting in the back seat and got his fingers jammed up his nose as far as you get him and said, hey, what are you digging for? French fries. <laughs> disgusting. Our grandson, we took him camping and he was playing in the fires. He's full of ashes and mosquitoes and snot. He was just gross. And sometimes you just don't like them, right? You love them, but you just don't like them. And so there's the need to train, and you get what I'm telling you. Secondly, there's the decline of the, in the family. And not unique to our generation, but there's, there's been a decline since the, I think, the end of Second World War. We had a, a social stigma of moms and dads staying together, at least for the children, refusing to divorce because of the children, my mom and dad were like that. They came to Christ later in life, but they stayed together for the children. There was a stigma and a social pressure to stay married, invest in your kids, and do the best you can, and put your selfish desires aside. 
And that's just kind of gone. So there's been a decline in the family. A divorce, dysfunctional family, and our daughter Amy, our youngest, who is now 35, been married about four years. She said, Dad, in her late 20s, she had been to faith. She said, a number of my peers have been already married and already divorced. Already. And that's within our fundamental Baptist circles, not just the world. Children leaving our churches, leaving their faith, lacking interest in serving God, whatever that would be, living for him. And parents sometimes telling them, don't ever leave me. Don't ever leave more than 20 miles from my home. That's what many are telling their kids. We told our kids, you go where God kens you and we'll just come visit you. You be what God wants you to be, and whatever that is, you just be the best. Our son Danny wanted to be a farmer. Kyle, can you imagine that? I didn't know a pig from a hog. I didn't know picking from combining. We said, then be the best farmer you can be. That's what we told our kids, but there's a decline in all of this. And there are attacks on the family as well. Thirdly, there are attacks on the family. In our culture, not new to us, uh, the Corinthian church faced it all the time. So, but it's new in a sense in our American culture. The culture war is escalated since uh, my mom and dad were raising us as kids. I think every cultural battlefield can be traced to an attack on the family. Try to name me one that isn't. There might be one that I've missed, but think of it. Drunkenness, drugs, pornography, casual sex, abortion, affluence, entitlement, sports as a god, um, sexual identity, secular humanism, Marxism, which goal is to destroy and disrupt the nuclear family. Every cultural battlefield is an attack on the family as a foundation of a society. You look fourthly at the dynamics of, of each generation, meaning the generational transformation of truth. So every generation has to learn it. Every generation has to teach it. It's not instinctive and automatic that truth is passed along without intentional discipleship. It's not intuitive. It needs to be taught and learned. Turn with me to Psalm 78 for just a moment. And uh, I'm going to share with you several key texts this week that we're going to light on a little bit in addition to Ephesians 6. But this would be one of them. This is the one that we really have found destructive, especially verses 1 through 8. But, but look, look with me uh, in verse 4. He says, We will not hide them, what our fathers told us, from their children. But we will tell the coming generation the glorious works of the Lord and his might and his wonders that he has done. He established a testimony or a law in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded to our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, that they'd arise and tell them to their children so they might put their hope in God and not forget his works. This is four generations of truth being transferred. Fathers, to me, children yet to be born, and even their children that are two generations out from even birth. There's a legacy of generational truth that we need to get a hold of. It has to be learned and it has to be taught to every generation of parents with kids. They leave a legacy behind us. We find that also in Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we'll come to later. Uh, fifthly, the importance of sound doctrine in 
raising our kids. Um, I want you to look with me in Titus chapter 2. And I, I, I just kind of reached this conclusion several years ago. As we were, Sandy and I came to Christ in our late 20s, and God, I think, had prepared us at least to give us some, uh, I think, parenting uh, abilities prior to us knowing the Lord. But then we got saved, we had a Bible and all this, all this exciting stuff, and we're, and we're just kind of surprised that it wasn't really understood much among in Christendom. Uh, people were shooting from the hip and making it up as they go, and we said, this is crazy. We have a Bible. We have the Savior. We have all these things. Uh, what has been missing? And so I, 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 th- I think part of the problem is that we have a system of theology, which is good, and we call them the major Bible doctrines. Could you name them in order? Can you name them in order? It begins with bibliology. The person of the God had theology, Christology, pneumatology, and then synology, right? <laughs> Hamartiology, then soteriology, then ecclesiology and eschatology. That covers everything in the Bible, right? No. There are ten major ones, pull out of it, but there's also the word doctrine means teachings. I think we romanticize the term that that's it, and nothing else really is from the Bible, yet everything taught is a doctrine. There is such a thing as the doctrine of the family. It just never made the Big Ten, which is now the Big 12. It just makes no sense. As a Minnesota gopher, that makes no sense to me. Anyway, need to let it go. <laughs> But, and I, I remember learning, and I love learning theology. I'd just been saved. It was just wonderful. But there's so many other teachings that are not in the Big Ten. So there is, a do, there is doctrine of the family, and I can prove it. Of course, there's teachings about the family. But look with me at the book of Titus, chapter 2. I love this. This is another one of our texts that I find incredibly helpful. He said, but as for you... Teach the words that accord with sound doctrine. Sound meaning healthy. It's a, it's a physical metaphor of health, healthy doctrine. So what follows? Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness, in behavior. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train and, and so train. Uh, They are to teach what is good, and so train the younger women. Older women teach the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children, to be self-controlled, to their to love their demissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may be not maybe not be reviled. So this is doctrine that has to do with relationships in a church and in a family. Older men, older women, not like this one over here, with ancient who knows what wisdom. This is sound doctrine. I gave it a name. Uh, Gary could never pronounce it correctly, so I won't have him do it. Yes. It's called oikonomology. O-I-K-O-N, oikonomology, not oikonomology, that's a study of hogs. Okay, it's oikonomology, oikonomos, is house governing. Namas is ruling. Oikos is home. We translate it stewardship or managing someone's house. Oikonomology, the study of the family. 
and the stewardship within it. And here is a great section on doctrine on older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and how it works. So I think we have missed how important that is because it wasn't part of the Big Ten. In reality, everything the Bible teaches is doctrine. We have to be careful not to exclude these things. So that, I think, presents the need. Secondly, is God's provision. And we're going, how do we fix this? How do we address it? Well, just quickly, God has made provision for every need that we have. We have salvation. And all these would come from Ephesians, which is going to be our basic test for the, for the week. Um, we, we are now alive, having been dead. <laughs> That's a big deal. We, we were lost, now we're found, we're blind, now we see, we're in darkness, now in light. That makes a difference. What we were and what we are. We are saved, we've been raised from the dead, and we are his workmanship. We're his poema, his masterpiece to be full of good works for him. We have the Savior. I think that makes a big difference. I used to know about him, and then I knew him. That's a big difference. When I came to Christ and God opened my heart, I now were seated in the heavenlies and now I'm in him. I live within the sphere of my relationship with Christ. That's my identity and my capacity and my motivation is now I'm in him. And the Bible says in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's preeminent in all things. So I have a savior. I have the spirit, the indwelling spirit of God. And you look in... Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man. To be filled with the Spirit, controlled by Him. Interesting what follows Ephesians chapter 5, but being filled with the Spirit and controlled by Him are some of the fruits of that, which is joy and thanksgiving and singing like we did today. And then moms and dads and kids and servants. Interesting, that's the first subject matter being filled is domestic relationships. Isn't that interesting? We have the Spirit. Um, he, is, he convicts us. He is our helper. He is the one that controls us and strengthens us and points us to Christ. We have the Scriptures. And I love our theme for this summer that the Word of God is given by inspiration of God and breathed out from God. And it is profitable means it is useful. It's not just to be memorized and learn and spit back out, but it is actually useful. We would use the word relevant. Dr. Robert Delnay was my homiletics professor recently with the Lord. One of those men that invested in me as a, a young believer, as a young preacher. He had so many just pithy, just sayings about Scripture to apply to life. And he said, you know, you don't make the Bible relevant, you keep it relevant. Just don't mess it up. It is profitable. It is useful. So as I learn these principles, I can put them to use, and they're actually helpful in living out my life, especially having to do with raising our kids. And we have the saints, meaning the family of God. Ephesians talks about the church, the body of Christ, the household of God, the temple of the, of the living God, and his body and his home. And so we have the, the benefit of believers investing in believers' life. 
We are called to make disciples by going and then baptizing and then teaching. And there's to be a ministry of instruction among believers, and that causes the body to grow. As we work together and labor at unity from Ephesians 4, and we everyone doing his part, Christ causes the body to grow by knitting us together. And so we minister to one, we have a great resource among ourselves to equip people for the work of the ministry and to do it. We also have the shepherds, because God saves some to be pastors and teachers, to be pastor-teachers, shepherds who teach, for the equipping of the saints so they can do the work of the ministry so they can grow to a knowledge of Christ. So God gave the church shepherds. They're God's gift to you. God set them apart for gospel ministry, gave them to your church sovereignly so that he could quit, they could equip you to do the work of the ministry, be an example to you, equip you, and go to, they're like a coach. So God has given us everything we need, his provision. It's important to remember that. Thirdly, a little bit of context about some of these <clears throat> principles. Uh, first of all, we're going to be going over what I call somewhat of a template uh, a framework and talk about some principles. We won't cover everything you'd want to know. We'll answer every question. Where we're going to talk about kind of a framework and a template about principles and how to apply them to your family. But I think it's important to know that as we talk about that, these are going to be timeless principles. Uh, they're imperatives. They're non-negotiables. It's our job to understand them and then apply them to life as stewards of our children. There might be some specifics missing. You have to kind of figure it out. And, 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 but I think learning and make an appeal to the Scripture, you appeal to good sense. Interesting, I find in Hebrews chapter 12, another good text talks about God loving his children, chastening his children for their good, for his glory, like we did. We had fathers who trained us and we respected them. And they did what seemed best to them. So sometimes you don't have the detail, but you think about the principle, the Spirit of God applies them, and you do what seems best according to that and make a judgment call. A lot of parenting is like that. Even before we were, we were saved, uh, Sandy said, I, I just don't know what to do. I said, if you don't like something, correct it. That relieved her. And so sometimes we just... Do what seems best to us. We make an appeal to Scripture, to good common sense, to wise counsel, an appeal to the Lord, and uh, just as template to kind of figure these things out. We also want to take these things seriously. Um, what I mean by that, and of course you do. These are your kids. You love them. But there needs to be a, a level where it's almost terrifying of the thought of being entrusted to raise them. Uh, when, when we had our first child, Angela, we weren't believers, and, and we were somewhat petrified of the job of training and shaping the life of a child. It, it was, to some degree, frightening. Here's a little life, and you're the one to shape it and to mold it and to care for it, to nurture it, to do all of this thing, and, and that was somewhat terrifying to us. So we took it very seriously. In fact, Sandy, at one time during pregnancy, said, I don't think I can do this. I said, we're too late. We're six months into this. <laughs> A little late for that. <laughs> and, and I said, you know, and this is how, how God gives you what to say, even in ignorance. I said, they're not born in senior high school, which is a blessing. We're going to grow with her. <sighs> that settled her down. She said, oh, good, they're born infants. 
And so we do grow with them, and we do process this, but it is somewhat terrifying, and should be, because the word stewardship means to be entrusted with something to care for someone else. And since they belong to him as a heritage of the Lord, and he entrusts them to us on his behalf, for his glory, for our good, to shape them and mold them so he can use them. And God has to do the work of regeneration and sanctification, and so we pray like crazy that God would do that in their hearts. But we have been given children to shape and to raise and ought to be taken seriously. We are to bring them up. And so we need to rethink, have a really grasped, you know, the significance of the raising of children. You know, God created human government, the local church, and the family. And this is one of those three. And those are big deals with God. And so we need to take that seriously. Another thing we need to do along this line is um, realize that this is difficult, demanding, and requires diligence. Um, if, if you read Proverbs 31, which was designed for young men to read, uh, what kind of woman they should be looking for, indirectly what kind of woman God wants you to be, a virtuous woman, and if you doubt me, go to Proverbs 31, verse 1, the things his mother taught him. Not these kind of women, but this kind of woman. It's the kind of man everyone should, woman every man should be looking for. And if you read that chapter, it's exhausting. And you hate when we preach about it, right? What a great Mother's Day. Proverbs 30, oh, here we go again. The, the guilt trip and the super mom and the you know, superhero era. I could never be that. Well, by God's grace, you can pursue that. But it, 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 it is exhausting. If you're doing it right, you'll be exhausted and worn out and want to quit frequently. When, when, when people begin to understand the level of investment in children, which requires many times diligence, Deuteronomy 6, teach them diligently. He that loves them trains them diligently. And, and not just confined or limited to devotion, but Deuteronomy 6, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, pretty much every moment could be a teaching moment apart from Sunday school, church, and devotions. That's not nearly enough. You start there and go to it's a way of life. When you grasp that, you go, whoa, this is a lot of work, and then I know you got it. But God gives grace for that. But it is difficult, demanding, not for the faint of heart, which is why men aren't entrusted to run the home. Why God gave it to women. He made them relational and a heart for children. And, and, and a mom that's diligent is an amazing thing to watch. A virtuous woman is a woman of strength of character. It, it's a military term that compares to an army with tanks and, and missiles. Sometimes you fire them at your kids. <laughs> you, you're engaged in a battle, but there's strength of character. And there's not many, there's not many of them. They're hard to find. And if you follow one, their prices are far above rubies. But it is difficult, demanding, and requires diligence. The next is that they, our children, at some time need to own it for themselves. We have to own it. Deuteronomy 6, Moses said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So love with all your heart, soul, and mind. 
And these things have to be on your heart. And then you teach them to your children. You have to own it. And our kids have to own it. At some point, they have to make this theirs. They have to make salvation theirs. They have to make their choices theirs. They have to know it. And it's, now, it's not just what their mom and dad believe, what their perception. This is what I believe about God. I'm going to walk with him. They have to own it. And I can't control that. My job is to shape them and mold them and train them and be a good steward and do everything within my ability and God's grace to pour everything into them, and they have to choose to own it. That's a scary thought, because they might choose not to. And I know many friends of mine who have children that have broken their hearts, and they're good moms and dads. You know, every one of us looks back and go, I should have done this differently. That, that, we, we all do that, and it's all true. But they go up in a good home, and we love them and care for them, and they made choices. Other factors went in, and they're breaking their parents' hearts. And those are scary moments when they're old enough to know that they need to own it. Our daughter Angela was in eighth grade, our oldest, and of course everything's new with your first one. And we were cruising along, and she was growing, and in eighth grade, she turned into a zombie. Hello? Anybody home? <laughs> you know, this blank look. Huh? And I said, Why, where did we go wrong? We, we thought about everything we had done, and what could we do? We tried everything. We just kept teaching and training and praying. You really pray hard, then she somehow came out of it. But that was a scary moment. And then all of her kids at that age, are they going to own it or not? And so you work hard to know you've done all that you know that you can do by the grace of God, understanding his word. But they have to own it for themselves, and I can't control that. And her daughter Amy was into her early, she's our youngest, was in her early 20s, mid-20s, late 20s, early 30s, still not married, wanted to be married, longed to have a husband, wasn't going to just settle for what wasn't right. Every Christmas we get together, Amy and Sandy and I, and exchange gifts, and the elephant in the room is one more year without a husband. Now she found contentment in the Lord as her husband in a sense that she was content in him and not bitter, not resentful, though there were tears. But God had not called her to singleness, and she knew that. So every year was a reminder and I had to know I could not give her a husband. Boy, I just wanted to. <laughs> I had given her everything else she needed as the dad. When you give them away, when they get married, you say, I'm no longer responsible to give her what he needs, she needs. And we gave her a home and direction and training and love and care and nursing. I could not, and I had to come to grips that I could not... Give her a husband. That was God's job to do that. That was somewhat liberating at the point that I just did what we just walked her through and different scenarios and, and God brought her to a man, brought her to Christopher and they found each other by the God's grace and now have a couple of kids. But I didn't do that and I couldn't. So we have to come to grips with though we're to be stewards, they have to own it. And that leads to another point here. There are many parties involved in the raising of kids. And, and we're one of them. 
We're given the stewardship and the training and the counseling and the, the sense of ownership of investing in them. And other people invest in them too. That's biblical that they do that. There'll be other people that taught them how to play the piano, taught them how to drive a car. Though Sandy actually drove, well, we taught them how to drive a car, even a stick. All our kids know how to drive a stick. But other people invested in them and went out to Bible, and there are people during our church days and then Bible college days, and people like Paul invest in Timothy. We welcome people's investment in our kids, so people invest in them. That's one part. But then God is sovereign, and so he works in ways we don't fully understand. He has to bring about uh, regeneration of the heart. Our kids, we were first-generation believers. Sandy and I came from unsaved homes. So we got saved in our late 20s. Our kids would never experience that. We came out of Lutheranism, out of religiosity, and all of that, a sense of arrogance and ego that went with that, and God humbled us and brought us to his son, and our kids would never have that experience for themselves. They'd grow up in a Christian home. There's some dangers in that, truthfully, some unique dynamic, because they will always have heard the gospel from the day they were born. They can memorize without even owning it. And so we pray that God would save them. That God, and so God had to do a work. Only he can save them. Only he can sanctify them. And that's a mystery. I don't fully understand that God works and wills to his good pleasure. So God is involved. And then you have themselves. They're accountable. We're accountable to praise them. God's, God, God's going to do his work that he does. And yet we, the, our kids are accountable for the choices that they make. And at some point, God just holds them accountable, good or bad. Uh, they're told in Ephesians 6 to honor their mom and dad and obey them with blessings or consequences. And it doesn't take long till they start making conscious choices for which God will hold them accountable. So even raised in the best of home and sometimes in the worst of home, they make good choices, God could really use them. But they're accountable, so none of this dismisses that they have to own and make are accountable for their decisions. That's some of the context of all of this. Let's look a little bit about the text we're going to talk about. We're going to be pretty much in the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Let's just read that as we begin. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, speaking of believing children within the realm of that, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke them, your children, to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's our text. But there's a larger text of Ephesians 1 through 6. And Ephesians is, uh, Dean Taylor wrote a book, The Thriving Church, based on, I think, Ephesians 4. It's a tremendous book that relates to all of those things. Chapters 1 and 3 have few, if any, exhortations in them. One to um, not become faint-hearted, one to remember my life before I was converted, but nothing that God wants us to do. He's laying the groundwork for all that we have in Christ. Look at Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Blessed is the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places. Then he goes on to tell us what those blessings are. He chose us, predestined us, he called us, he saved us, and all the things that we have in Christ. And at the end of the chapter, Paul just bursts into this, he can't contain it anymore. And so he gets to chapter 3 and verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend, to fully grasp with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him that's able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, ever and ever, amen. <laughs> Three chapters about who we are in Christ and what we have in him. Then he begins to tell us how to walk. So chapters 1 to 3 show us who we are and what we have in Christ. In chapters 4 to 6, I therefore ask you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling. That's going to be our larger text, but there's a couple other texts I want to go over today, and we mentioned them, and we're going to touch on some of them. And so the next one will be Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78, and Proverbs, the whole book. We're going to pull from some of them, and I would recommend, if you've never done so, take a proverb of a day for a month and do it again and do it again and highlight everything to do with family and kids. Mark it up. We fell in love with the Lord and the book of Proverbs as young parents. And we say, wow, <laughs> this is amazing. It is wisdom, God's wisdom for life. Psalms is communicating with God, relationship with him, and Proverbs is wisdom for living, friendship, money, family, kids. And then pray that God would help you to compile them and, and, and put them together and apply them to the raising of your kids. It is indispensable. It's to give young men wisdom and discretion and equity and judgment. I was a young man with kids. Sandy was 22 when her first was born. I was 24, and we needed God's wisdom to raising kids. And I said, we now have a Bible. And I remember and we were first saved and I think listening to Jan Michelson in the morning and they had a, had a guy on and a mom, she said, boy, I wish kids were born with an instructor's manual. I said, they do. It's called the Bible. <laughs> I screamed at the radio in my car. I hope no one was looking. You know? I said, they do. And so... Immerse yourself into Proverbs. Take a proverb a day and highlight. But Deuteronomy 6, Psalm 78, Proverbs 1 to 31. Don't be scared of chapter 31. We'll talk about that more later. And then Colossians 3, Titus 2, Hebrews 12. And add 1 Peter 3 that talks about marriage because without a godly strong marriage, it'll, it, you'll not like it to invest in your kids right. If there's conflict and dysfunctionality, your kids are going to pick up on that. You won't have credibility with them. You won't have the capacity for that. Your heart won't be right. It'll affect the way you raise your kids. In fact, God mentions it first in Ephesians 5, following being filled with the Spirit to, to work on your marriage, to, to love and submit and to nurture, and then talks about kids. So get that right first. 
So these are important texts, and I would challenge you to begin to dig into them. We're going to pull out of it enough, I think, to whet your appetite this week. We'll make reference to some of them. But I would really encourage you to, these are not everything the Bible says about the raising of kids and family, but they are these condensed kind of uh, passages really highlight a lot. If you knew these, you could do pretty well. encourage you to dig into them. Um, and also, but what are some of God's expectations of us as we sense the need, God's provision? What does God expect from us as parents? Well, he wants us to walk with him. That's Ephesians 4 through 6. We walk worthy, we walk in love, we walk in light, we walk in wisdom, we walk in the Spirit. We're to walk with Him and own your walk with Him. So really we begin with your walk with God and what that looks like. That's how I begin being a good parent. He expects us to walk with Him. He wants us to be filled with His Spirit. That is a command At the moment of our conversion, we were baptized into the body of Christ, immersed into the body. God placed us there in a non-experiential way, but it was real. But this is a command to be filled, to be controlled by his spirit. It's a conscious, continual thing to say, Lord, my life is yours. I yield to him. This is for saved, spirit-filled moms and dads to do what God wants to do. Now, I think unsaved people can have decent kids. I've got a couple of nephews that are really good kids. They would put some believing kids to shame as far as their character is concerned. So it's not that nobody can raise kids, but these are for spirit-filled, saved parents. He wants us to be filled with spirit. He wants us to know his word about him and what's expected of us. We really need to dig into his word. Beyond this week, this is just to kind of set the template, give the principles, kind of focus our attention, but you're going to have to take this and run with it to know his word and to know him. Part of growing up in Ephesians 4 is, is a knowledge of the Son of God. That we might be mature, a knowledge, and this is an experiential knowledge, that you walk with Christ and experience him everyday life, and you grow in an experiential knowledge of him. He wants us to obey him and do what he wants us to do. Sometimes you just buckle up and just do it, because <laughs> that's what God says. It might not make sense, might be the only one who gets this. And if you really begin to understand some of the teachings, you might not have many people that agree with you. Interesting. And you're going to have to just buckle up and do it. And God said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord of God, but things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we might do them. So as God has revealed things, he wants us to do them. He wants us to trust him, depend upon him. We bring them up in the discipline instruction of the Lord, which means concerning him, for him, by him, depending upon him within that realm of my walk with the Lord is how I do this. And you're thinking, oh, man. But there is hope. There's always hope. First of all, this stuff must matter and it must make a difference, or why would God talk about it so much? Yes, our kids are accountable. Yes, they have to own it. But if this didn't matter and didn't make a difference, why would God tell us how to train them, how to counsel them, how to invest in them, to walk with them, by the way, to spend all of that energy into them because it does make a difference in how they turn out. We're also instruments of God. We're also instruments of God. Let's go to 
Did I lose Noah back there? I think I lost him. Let's go. There we go. There is hope. Second one. There we go. Uh, there we go. We're instruments or vessels in the hand of God. We become his mouthpiece. We become his voice. And so when you lead them to repentance and lead them to restoration, God is speaking through you to them because that's how he works, like he spoke even through the prophets. So the nature of children, though they're unregenerate and just downright disgusting sometimes, God made them to be teachable. He says they're mimics. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it said, we are to be imitators of God like dear children. There's again the analogy that we are to imitate God. And the word is mimitao, means to mimic. Children are little mimics. They, they, they just love imitating. And that God made them teachable, that if we show them what to do, they can mimic us, which is scary and gives us hope at the same time. And I remember when... Uh, all of our kids started coming home and coming up with really not good behavior. So I wonder where they got that. <laughs> and then I looked in the mirror. Oh, got it from mom and dad. That's convicting. On the good side, they are mimics of things that go well. And God made them trusting, the faith of a child. They are trusting. God wired them to be able to be taught. That gives me hope in the midst of unregenerate you know, socially inept children, that they're trainable because God made them to be mimics and trusting. And of course, we put our ultimate hope in God and his word. God and his word. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 with me in verse 11. And of course, in Proverbs 31, we'll get to that in a second. 2 Timothy 3, the word of God is profitable as we instruct them and correct them and reprove them and train them. It is profitable. And interesting, 2 Timothy 3 is within the context of the last days, which will be difficult. Now, in one sense, we're living in the last days since the death of Christ. These are the last days. There's the last part of the last days, but we're living in the last days. And they are difficult. And one thing mentioned is disobedience to parents. So I find hope that in the midst of difficult days and pressures on our family, somewhat unprecedented, the Bible's still my resource for being profitable. That's the context of 2 Timothy 3. I find great hope in that. And that even Timothy, from a child, he knew the Holy Scriptures, able to make him wise, and then it talks about the, the Word of God being breathed out by him. So all of the context has to do with difficult days, Children learning the word of God from infancy is the word. The word child is an old, it means from infancy they learn the scriptures, what impacted his life. So I just find great hope that the word of God is a resource in difficult days and the raising of children. But look with me at Hebrews chapter 12, and, and it's a great chapter that compares as an analogy God's training us and loving us and and, and the, the analogy to the training of our own children. And there were times when we didn't quite lose hope, but it was pretty tough. And I come home from work, and even before we were saved, and she said, I think, she's almost weeping. She said, I think all I did was spank them all day. I said, did they deserve it? She said, yes. I said, then keep it up. There will be days like that. And what you're doing isn't working. 
So you pray for creativity because this isn't working. It isn't having the right result. And say, Lord, help me be, hold, how do I hold them accountable differently? Because they don't value this. What do I find that they value that I could take away? Because this isn't working. And so as we train, there were those days and those moments where you just pull your hair and go, this isn't working. It's really not very much fun right now. I love them, but I don't really like them. We have grandkids like that. At some point, we liked them, loved them, but didn't really like them. And so we just hung on to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11. Let's begin for the moment. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. The KGV says, not joyful, but grievous. It's really not fun, and it's actually painful. But, and I like the KGB, but afterwards. But later, it will yield the peaceable fruit when they're fighting about where to sit in the car. And they sat over my line. And they pick on purpose to get under their skin. And they love it. And knock it off. And... Afterwards, it yields that peaceable fruit where they actually get along and they actually love their sibling. It took several years. (laughs) But afterwards, that's the word. It yields peaceable fruit of righteousness to those that are trained by it. So the training makes a difference. And we just hung on to the word afterwards. I should have had a little P. Graham Dunn thing that said afterwards. Every day, we just hung on to that promise, and God was true to his word. So there's hope. And I'll finish with this this morning. Proverbs 31, I think, is grossly misunderstood. We'll pull it out a little bit. It's designed for men and how to find a virtuous woman. By implication, how a woman could be virtuous as she becomes a wife. Talk about caring for your family. A woman clothes everything. She clothes her children in wool and scarlet, colorful, warm clothing. She clothes her home with tapestries and bed coverings so it doesn't look like a prison cell or a men's dorm room. You know, why does the women's dorm look different than the men's dorm at faith? You really want to know the answer? Women are wired to decorate. And we can learn to like that. We have seasonal pillows. You there yet? <laughs> and I like it. Okay, when's, when can we flip to the new ones? Maybe you have to replace the old because the old ones are out of style. And we're okay with that. Anyway, I digress. It goes on and on about caring for the home and stretching out her hand to the needy. And, and, her, and, her, and, her, and her mouth is law of kindness as she observes the way of her household. All the things about caring for the home. Always observant, hardworking from morning till night with no recognition. pretty much none, from the world. And this verse is inserted, and her husband is known in the gates. Why is that there? Because she's okay with that. He's in public. People recognize him. She gets nothing from the public because her work is in private. It's in the home. But she's okay with that. She's content that her investment is in her children. And we are to praise her. Her husband praises her. It comes from us. 
to recognize the investment and never give up doing that because it's not coming from anywhere else. And the woman who fears of God, God will praise her. She finds recognition from him, but it says, one day, her children are known in the gates. They go up and now they're public. Everyone knows that's the work of primarily the mother. And now like a, a poet who paints in private and has the unveiling and people see what was done in secret, and now she's praised, her works are praised in the gates. And then one day, those children, they might rise up and they might call her blessed. And that day might not be today. It won't be for a long time to say, Mom and Dad, thank you for investing in my life when I was a kid. That day might not be today. There's hope that it'll come. Our son Danny was at Bible college, and he was walking with the Lord and loving now his younger sister as best he could. The picking was over. He protected Angela, but somehow he picked an Amy, and she picked back. She was pickable. Yeah. He calls up, and he had his guilt calls. You know, he wouldn't call for weeks and leave a five-minute voicemail um, or on the answering machine. To, it's like a confession of not calling. So he actually got hold of Sandy, and he said, Hi, blessed. What? Yeah. They'll rise up and call you blessed. And she cried. Thank you for investing in my life. I didn't get it. But now I do. So thank you for being a mom who cared for me when I was younger. So there's hope and a lot of work. Let's begin our journey together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our families. Whatever stage of life we're in, we need your help. We need your son. We need your word. We need your spirit. We need the saints. We need shepherds. And Father, we need to be diligent and strengthened by your spirit to be good stewards of our homes as grandmas and grandpas and parents in the thick of it, maybe new believers who need to know what a godly home looks like. Father, we are appealing to you to help us this week to find things that will be profitable in the word of God regarding our families. We give them to you, ask you to bless us in this endeavor. Thank you for these dear people as we begin this journey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.